If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. During the Second World War, six talented mathematicians were brought together to make history. These six women had one mission, to program the world's first supercomputer. Called the ENIAC, it could calculate missile trajectories. This was long before coding or computer programming languages existed. But the success of this top-secret mission helped initiate an electronic computing revolution that some would soon call the birth of the information age. Why then has the remarkable achievement of these women been largely forgotten? Rachel Dinning spoke to Cathy Kleiman about her book Proving Ground, which seeks to place these remarkable women firmly back into the history books. So I thought as a starting point, could you tell us who these six brilliant women at the heart of your book are and how you came across their story? Thanks so much for asking kind of the key question of of the book, which is how these women who were not labeled in pictures for over 70 years, how they 
how I found their story. Um, the women were the first programmers of the world's first modern computer. There are lots of ways to define that, but um, we defined it as the first general purpose, programmable, all electronic computer, kind of the trunk of the modern computer tree. And years ago, when I was an undergraduate studying computer science, wondering why there were so few women in computing, I found pictures of this great computer called ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. And the pictures had women in them, but the names weren't in the captions. And clearly the same women in the pictures again and again. And so I took the pictures to my professor and I said, you know, who are the women? He said, I I don't know who they are, but I think I know someone who does. And he sent me to the co-founder and then director of the Computer History Museum, which was in Boston then. It was a brand new museum. It was in Boston Now it's a huge museum in Silicon Valley. But um, I went to the director and showed her the pictures. And I'm afraid she rolled her eyes at me and said, the refrigerator ladies. And I said, what's a refrigerator lady? And she was referring to the 1950s refrigerator commercials, which were in black and white, like these pictures were in black and white, where models open the door to the refrigerator where they flourish. And so she was telling me that they were models. And I kept looking at the pictures. The ENIAC was huge, eight feet tall and 80 feet long. And I didn't think you could just put anyone in front of it and have them look as comfortable and self-assured as these women. And I thought, they know something. They know a lot about this computer. And I'd like to find them and uh, see what story they tell me. And I did. Amazing. Um, So we're going to provide a bit of background context now. Um, So these six women, and for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to refer to them as the ENIAC six. I think you (laughs) you refer to them as that in your book. Um, So they all began their careers in computing during the Second World War or around this time. So how common was it for women to pursue careers in this field at this time? Well, if I might, there was no field of computing at the time. So they, they will help create it. They will help pioneer it. So the field that they were pursuing was mathematics. Before World War II, women in the United States, with a few exceptions, but most of the women who graduated as math majors from college in the United States, which was a vanishingly small number of both men and women, were not allowed to work in traditional mathematics professions. The ones we think about, accountants, bookkeepers, actuaries, were men's jobs in the 1930s and before. But come World War II, as with many other jobs in the what we call the U.S. World War II home front, the men left for war and all sorts of jobs were open for women. And I knew about jobs in the factories. I knew about jobs in the farms. That's what we're taught in my U.S. history courses that we take in school. But I did not know that women were extensively recruited, massively recruited into STEM. Anyone who had a background in science, engineering, mathematics had 25 jobs waiting for them in in the U.S. at the time. So these women were recruited by the U.S. Army to calculate a differential calculus equation for a ballistics trajectory. The path of a missile from the time it leaves the muzzle of a gun, big gun, an artillery gun, until it hits a target. Very complicated mathematics. Initially, they were recruited in Philadelphia, then New York, then across the country. And that's what they came to do and spend their war years doing for the country, for the U.S. Army. And six of them were chosen to program the computer in a very experimental machine that was designed to automate that task. Amazing. So I wanted to talk specifically about their role initially calculating these ballistic trajectories. So the ENIAC-6, I believe they all 
were involved with this work. This predated the ENIAC computer. I mean, you've mentioned it a little bit already, but can you tell us how exactly what they were doing over in America was directly influencing what was happening over on the on the Western Front and over in Europe? It's a very, very good question. So traditionally, when you read about the great gunners of history, from what I understand, great gunners who had cannons worked on their knowledge of the wind, of the distance, of the conditions in the field, and set their guns to hit their targets. But by the time we get to World War II, the distances are enormous that these cannons can shoot. They're called medium and long-range artillery, mostly called howitzers, if you have, you know, great World War II people in your audience. Um, So these are big howitzers, and they can shoot 8 to 14 miles. So the gunner obviously can't even see the target. And it turns out that weather conditions on the battlefield have a big impact on the arc of that trajectory. If it's raining, if it's snowing, if there are crosswinds, it's going to affect the missile, you know, this uh, shell, not really a missile, a shell, um, no matter how heavy it is. And so that's the information that's taken into account in this calculation for one gun with one type of shell under one set of weather conditions. You can, if you spend 30 or 40 hours by hand, you can calculate pretty accurately what angle to shoot the gun to hit that target. And this was kind of a remarkable discovery during World War One, continuing between the wars and then into World War Two. But you needed firing tables with lots and lots of variations. And that's why they went to recruit over 100 women. And by the way, they called them computers. A computer was a person before it was a machine. And one thing I found really interesting when thinking about about the technology that was being used at this time. Because basically, if, well, if, if today I wanted to make a calculation, I can just fire up my laptop or my phone, go onto my calculator, do, you know, I can do some sums very easily. And back then they had these things called desk calculators, didn't they? So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what these desk calculators looked like and a bit more about the sort of technology that they were using to make these calculations. Oh my gosh, mechanical desktop calculators. They were uh, big clunky mechanical devices of about 15 pounds that you put on your desk. And um, they were analog, meaning that it was gears that did the calculations. Um, And they could do a basic equation, distance subtraction, but you had to put in each number, click, 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 click. And then um, another number, click, 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 click. And it was the gears that would run through the operation and you'd see them on little windows and you'd write them down with your pen or pencil on on long sheets of, of white paper. And the women were the real intelligence of the system going through this differential calculation, this differential calculus equation step by step and using these desktop calculators for kind of long addition, subtractions, and multiplications. And did the ENIAC-6 know that their efforts at this time back in America were having successful outcomes in the Second World War? Did they know the impact of what they were doing? Yes. It's interesting. They comment that there were a lot of things they could be doing. One of them mentions that there was a lot of knitting going on for the Red Cross. They were doing calculations that they knew went to the battlefront and help the gunners. They actually thought they were involved more directly than they were. They thought that their calculations were going directly to the battlefront. They did not realize, they were not told, that they were going to a place called Aberdeen Proving Ground, an army base that would assemble all the answers and created tables for 
the gunners and their officers to use in the field where based on, you know, you could measure the wind, you could measure the distance, and then find the place in the table with these pre-calculated results and, and then use that to set the, the artillery. But um, the women knew they were working directly with battlefield results. And I wanted now to talk about the development of the ENIAC. So in 1943, the army funded the building of the world's first all-electric general-purpose programmable computer, the ENIAC. In layman's terms, how significant was this piece of technology in the history of Well, computing, we'd call it the history of computing today, I suppose. It was a sea change. The ENIAC was a sea change. Before the ENIAC, we had electromechanical computers, and there was work with, including in the UK, with all electronic computers that were very fast. Huge hardware was dedicated to a single task. It did it very well and very rapidly, but a single task. In the United States, we had electromechanical computers with mechanical parts, and there was work with programming them, but they weren't fast. They weren't all electronic. So this is the first time where we're merging new technologies with a vision of the inventor, the co-inventor, Dr. John Mockley, who really thought, if we're going to have all this hardware, why can't we reuse it? Why can't we reprogram it for another complicated equation? And he really thought this concept through. So the adjectives I like best on ENIAC are general purpose programmable, because that begins to open up the modern world. And then all electronic, super fast. Um, It will take what Dr. John Mockley and his uh, cohort, J. Presper Eckert, a brilliant young engineer, what they told the Army is that it would take the calculation of these ballistic trajectories from one week to a few seconds. And so then the Army kind of said, prove it. Right. And obviously that's going to save so much time, so much money, but also as a huge investment. How did the women at the heart of your book come to be involved in the in this project? And what exactly were their contributions? So they're calculating ballistics trajectories. And starting in early 1943, a group of men in the same place in Philadelphia at the Moore School of Electrical Engineering that is part of the University of Pennsylvania. So the women are calculating ballistics trajectories and the men are building the ENIAC. And they're separated. And in fact, there's a big sign that says restricted on the door to the ENIAC room. And uh, the women are not allowed in. So they they really, they know something big is going on. A lot of steel, a lot of wiring is, is disappearing into that room. But they, they don't know what's being built. They call it Project X. And um, it's not till the end of the war, right at the end of the war, when the men realize that this very experimental hardware, again, eight feet tall and 80 feet long, 40 unique units, and it works. Uh, No one was really sure until the end it would, and it works. And so now the men go back to the contract and they're they realize they have to deliver a working ballistics trajectory program with the ENIAC to the Army. That's the requirement. Their, their job wasn't to build a computer. The job was to build a computer that calculates ballistics trajectories. And so they pick six of their best computers, hand them the wiring diagrams of ENIAC, and say, you know, we built it, you program it, and uh, we'll, uh, we'd like to see the program soon. And these computers, I mean, you've said already computers back then refers to people and these computers were these six women and they came up with the programming for the ENIAC and how how to talk to it, basically, because that's what programming is, isn't it? Having a language with a computer. 
Well, exactly. Although programming languages didn't exist per se, the way we think about it, there was no typing on the ENIAC. You could not sit down in front of ENIAC and type in the instructions. It just didn't exist yet. The women would actually be part of the teams that help create programming languages later. So I, I was fascinated by, by the steps it took for these women to program ENIAC. First, they had to learn the 40 unique units of ENIAC, how they work. One was a high-speed multiplier. One was a square root divider. Something called an accumulator, and there were 20 of them, could add, subtract, and temporarily store a number. So they had to learn all of that. Then they had to break their ballistics trajectory, this really complicated equation, down into the very, very incremental steps the ENIAC or indeed any computer can handle. And then they physically had to route the data and the instructions around the ENIAC every every microsecond of the program, basically. So they had these thick wires for the numbers, and they would route it from one unit to another. And they had these really thin wires for what's called the program pulse, not really an instruction, but a pulse that would start an operation going and say the high-speed multiplier. When that pulse came in, if it was properly, if the high-speed multiplier was properly set up to take in two numbers, when it got that pulse, it would multiply those two numbers and then send the result someplace else. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Have the ENIAC 6 women been written out of the history of the ENIAC until obviously you've sort of uncovered their story? Um, how has the history of the ENIAC traditionally been told over the past sort of 75 years? The history of the ENIAC has been told as a history of men building hardware, big men building big hardware. And 
it was actually when I was an undergraduate. I kind of looked at all this and wrote a paper where the subtitle was Men are Hard and Women are Soft, that men seem to be behind the hardware. Women seem to be very involved from right at the beginning with the software, although we don't have software per se yet, with the programming. And the history of computing had been written as a history of hardware. And I thought, that's not really fair. I'm a programmer. You know, I like I like my laptop, but I'm not really, I don't know that much about what's under the hood. What I care about is how to, how to, how to work with and use all of this power. And I wanted to know who had given us the programming concepts and techniques, and there was nothing there. And so finding these women, for me, was also finding the origins of, of the field I love. And so it all linked that we were just missing a piece of history. It's so interesting. And one thing I, when I was reading your book that really struck me was you described when they had the PR event for the ENIAC. Um, I think it was in 1947, 1946. And the ENIAC 6 weren't, they were invited to the event, but they were asked to pour coffee as like hostesses. They weren't there to inform the journalists about the processes or anything like that. They were just there to pour coffee. One thing I'm curious about in particular, do you know how they felt about not perhaps being recognized for their contributions? So there were there were two events. You, you pointed to one of them. On February 1st, journalists were invited into the ENIAC room, which again had been sealed, top secret, for during the, the during the end of World War II when it was being built, and then for about six months afterwards. So journalists were the first ones in, and a demonstration was run, which was pretty boring, frankly. The journalists and the women were invited to a lunch, and the women served coffee, and the men who had all these questions about the ENIAC did not know. They were sitting with the experts and that they should be asking them about it. And so I remember Kay McNulty, Mockley, and Tonelli. I use all of their names. She, uh, you know, she kind of commented once to me, you know, many years later, that it was a wasted opportunity. The journalists really, you know, could have gotten a lot more for their stories if they had known who they were sitting at the table with. But two weeks later, there's a bigger demonstration. This is for the leaders of the science and technology community. And they're invited to a demonstration of ENIAC. And the climax of that demonstration is the ballistics trajectory calculation that the women have run. But by then, just like modern programming today, you don't see the thousands of hours that go into the programming. You press a button, we hit a key. In that case, they pressed a button on a little remote um, clicker that was attached by a cord to the ENIAC. And the whole thing runs. And it runs, it calculates the trajectory in 20 seconds, the room gasps, and they really realize that um, technology has changed, the information age has started. Um, And they don't introduce the women. They introduce a lot of people. They introduce the, the hardware engineers, they introduce the deans, they introduce the army officers, but they don't introduce the women, and they don't invite the women to dinner that night. Big, fancy dinner uh, with the president of the University of Pennsylvania and the head of the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. When I asked the women, you know, one of them was very philosophical, and she said, well, we were just computers as far as the army was concerned. But two of them were like, you know, no, we should have been invited to that dinner. We're still a little, you know, peeved that we weren't. And, you know, I thought that sounded fair, but it didn't stop what they were doing. It didn't end their story. It didn't end their involvement and their leadership and their innovation. It was just, you know, a momentary setback where, you know, the men should have invited the women and didn't. And that was very typical of the period. What other challenges, or perhaps even sexism, if you wanted to use a stronger word, did the ENIAC 6 face throughout their careers as women in STEM? Actually, 
Not a lot. I think most of the sexism comes in by their being written out by others who said women couldn't possibly have done that. Well, they did. Uh, One of the things I teach my students is if you're the first one in a field, there's nobody who can tell you you don't belong there. So Betty Holberton and Jean Bardick went on to cutting-edge careers in computing for years. Betty Holberton in particular helped shape early programming languages and testing routines. She helped design COBOL. She was recognized as a leader by her peers according to the, the documents and the transcripts and even an oral history at the Smithsonian that she and Jean did together. Uh, in the 1970s. So they did face some discrimination. Betty talks about how in the 1940s, women were nothing. They were, you know, it was it was hard to be recognized by the men, but still they figured out how to be leaders. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that their story will help us remove some of the sexism that still exists in computing today. Uh, kind of this idea that, that there are stereotypes, and, but the stereotypes are wrong. Everyone should be in computing. And that brings me sort of neatly onto their legacy. Um, why is it important that we keep telling their story in particular? Oh, we have so many jobs on your side of the Atlantic and my side of the Atlantic and across the world, so many jobs in high tech and computing and robotics and AI and web design and cyber, so many jobs opening up over the next decade, two decades. And to fill them, we need everybody. We need our best people. And everyone knows and is trying to train both women and men. Um, But there's still a stereotype that computing is for men, frankly, and it's turning away a lot of women. And so if we can tell the history, share the history, incorporate its lessons into our lessons, into our programming discussions, I think it will help open more doors and we'll get more and better people in fields that uh, we need to staff in the future. Um, So you've experienced since publishing your book, and perhaps a bit before, because I know you've done TED Talks and you did a documentary on these women, um, you have experienced some negative pushback to telling the story of the ENIAC 6. I think some competing historians have derided it as revisionist history. Uh, What's your response to that? Well, first, it kept me from telling the history for a long time. Um, I thought it was so obvious that once we pointed out that the history of computing had only been written for half of it, people would kind of flock and write the other half. Um, I'm a lawyer, not, you know, not a historian per se. So no one did. Um, And when we got to the 50th anniversary of ENIAC, most of the women, most of the ENIAC 6 were not invited. And that occurred to me to be a tragedy. We got them invited and I began to seek uh, money to research and record what they did. And we, we have extensive broadcast quality oral histories in 2014 with John Paul Freeman, who actually came out of the BBC. We produced a documentary called The Computers, The Remarkable Story of the ENIAC Programmers, where the ENIAC programmers tell you their story for the ENIAC 6. Look at the camera and say, we did this. And still some of the computer historians, particularly younger ones, said, no, no, the work they did wasn't important. Uh, they couldn't have done that. They didn't know what they were doing. And so finally, I wrote the book with um, as much research and as much background and uh, as many quotes from the women as as, uh, I could find, uh, including that they did parallel programming of ENIAC, which is very sophisticated stuff. So I'm hoping that forever puts to bed the rumor that women were not significant parts of early programming. I mean, really equal partners in pioneering computing. I wanted to ask you also about the challenges more broadly about uncovering what we would describe 
this as, as hidden history. Um, what challenges do we face when we're trying to write something that's a hidden history? And how, like, what would your advice be um, to any budding historians out there who are like, I want to uncover stories that haven't been told? Uh, first, for, for all historians, explore your own unconscious biases. You know, that's, that's kind of a buzz term in industry as well. Um, when you're considering promoting people in tech, explore your unconscious biases. I've been around the world with Google and we've been talking about this. Um, but for young historians, I would urge them to please, please tell their stories. We have historians who are now women and people of color, and they will see the world differently. They will see the gaps. They will see the people who have been left out of history. And please, please, please tell these stories. You're going to hit opposition. You're going to hit people who say it doesn't exist. But try to get past those barriers because these are critical histories that we need to know. We know very little about the history of STEM. We're finding out it is a history of hidden figures. Let's put those figures back into history. And I think everyone will be inspired by what we find. And I thought, I suppose, finally, because um, we're at the end now, I'm aware that we've talked about these women as a sort of collective group and that we haven't perhaps named them. So I suppose to end the podcast, we really should name them as the as the individuals that they are. Um, so would you would you mind naming the six women who formed this group? I I would be absolutely happy to, and I will look. They're they're all on. There's a picture of each of them on the cover of the book. Um, and thank you, thank you for pointing that out because we do think of them as a group. I'm going to use both their maiden names because when they were working during World War II, they're working. They were in their 20s. They weren't married yet, but. I've seen them referred to by their maiden names and their married names without the author ever knowing it was the same person. So I'll, I'll use all of them so we have them. Jean Jennings Bardick, Betty Snyder Holberton, Ruth Lichterman Teitelbaum, Francis Belis Spence, Marlon Westcoff Meltzer, and Kay McNulty Mockley Antonelli. Those were the ENIAC six, and I got to know four of the original ENIAC programmers very well. I got to know Betty, Jean, Marlon, and Ruth, and um, they were just incredible people and um, wonderful storytellers and really inspiring role models. Amazing. And if people at home want to know more about them, uh, where should we point them? Obviously, your book, which is called Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. Um, that's out now. Uh, but where else can people look for more information? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Uh, we've put together a nonprofit organization called the ENIAC Programmers Project to try to find and record more stories of women and people of color in early computing. And the website is www.eniacprogrammers.org, all one word. Amazing. Well, all that's left for me to do now is thank you for coming on the podcast, Kathy. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Rachel, this has been so much fun. And thank you for, for sharing the story of the ENIAC 6. That was Kathy Kleiman. Kathy's book, Proving Ground, the untold story of six women who programmed the world's first modern computer, is published by Hearst and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Listener.